This Sunday's passage is one that we could easily skip over, uh, since it talks about people who are long dead and circumstances in the distant past. It reads more like a personal letter than an epistle from the great Apostle Paul. And while it might be interesting as a matter of church history, how much can it possibly help me as a Christian living today? Uh, What does some bookkeeping between Paul and the Philippians have to do with me? What am I supposed to learn from it? And perhaps if we read this Sunday's passage without placing it within the larger book, the larger themes of the book of Philippians and the Bible as a whole, we won't get much out of it. But like so many seemingly insignificant parts of Scripture, this one stretches its fingers into the great story of the glorious God who saves and teaches us to live in a way that glorifies him. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, in a manner worthy of the good news or gospel of Christ. Our passage this Sunday is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. But that's not where we're going to start. First, I want to go back to an earlier section. Those of you who have been here the last two Sundays will note that this is the third Sunday in a row we have read this section. This is partly because I like it so much, and partly because you won't understand this Sunday's passage without keeping this earlier section in mind. In the section I'm about to read, Paul tells the Philippians how people who are saved by Jesus Christ and indwelt by his spirit should behave. And he tells them why. I'll start in verse 3 and read to verse 8, reading from the NIV translation. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world in the form of a servant. Some versions translate this word as slave, which should give you some idea of the kind of servanthood that is meant here. It involves a much deeper commitment than we might expect of servants today, who are basically employees and aren't expected to lay down their lives for their employers. But it's also a little different than slavery in American history since those slaves were taken against their will. Christ gave himself freely on the cross. The servanthood meant here is a sort of voluntary slavery, a total commitment to serve someone at all costs. 
Christ's servanthood, his suffering, and death for the sake of his people are a model for the Christian life. To be a faithful Christian is to be willing to suffer for the sake of your brothers and sisters and to consider their well-being is more important than your own. There is an idea that is popular in some of today's churches that Jesus Christ suffered so that we don't have to. He sacrifices so for me so I won't have to sacrifice at all. He died so that I can conquer my personal challenges and live a life that is free from financial or psychological distress. But a life of self-interest and comfort is not what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. The good news is not that we will have earthly comfort. What Jesus purchased for us on the cross was pardon from the just punishment for our sins, which is eternal damnation, along with the gift of eternal life. He has done this for all who put their faith and trust in him. This is the good news or the gospel. Living a life that is worthy of this true gospel is to live a life that mirrors Christ's sacrificial love for you by becoming a servant or slave yourself. A life that is worthy of the gospel goes beyond mere rule following. This life requires us to love each other in the same way that Jesus loved us. Jesus says as much in John 13, verses 34 and 35. This is what he says. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The mark of true disciples of Jesus is not comfortable lives. The mark of true disciples is that they love each other in the same way that Jesus loves them. The way that Jesus loves you is shown in his becoming a servant and humbling himself even to death on a cross in order to redeem you. In practical terms, loving each other means following Paul's command in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Loving one another in the same way that Christ loved you means laying aside your ambitions and interests to sacrificially serve your brothers and sisters. One of the reasons that Paul is writing to the Philippians is to remind them that they already know how to live as servants, which is proven by their sacrificial love for Paul and support of his gospel ministry. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 5, For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Even so, you have done well to share with me in this present difficulty. 
What Paul calls his present difficulty is that he, he is a prisoner in Rome. Paul's ministry was full of difficulties. Paul's ministry was not just a ministry of proclaiming the gospel, although that was an essential part of it. It was also a ministry of affliction and suffering that testified to the truth of his words. Paul lived out the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ by his willingness to suffer for Christ and for the well-being of the churches. And the Philippians were his partners in this suffering. This is why Paul says in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. The Philippians were Paul's partners in the gospel because of their willingness to suffer for Christ and their sacrificial support of his gospel ministry, a ministry of suffering. But you might ask, can't the gospel be effectively preached without sacrifice and suffering? I don't think it can. It is true that the Lord in his great mercy may use the preaching of wicked and self-interested men to save people. These men might say the right words. They might preach the true gospel. They might be able to reason from the scriptures to refute every objection to the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. But if they aren't willing to suffer for their brothers and sisters if they don't put the well-being of others before their own, their lives will be giving a different and contradictory message. It is good and necessary to proclaim the gospel. But how much better if we also live in such a way as to demonstrate the gospel's power? How much better to also prove that Christ's spirit dwells in us as we live earthly lives that reflect Christ's earthly life? How much better if we prove that Jesus truly reigns in heaven by being empowered by his spirit to endure suffering for the sake of our brothers and sisters? The preaching of the gospel should always be accompanied by Christ-like servanthood. And to be a true partner in the gospel you must be willing to live a life of servanthood. What I want you to understand as we approach this morning's passage is that Christians are to live servant lives of sacrifice for one another. Paul, as a gospel minister, exemplifies this servant attitude, and his afflictions testify to the truth of the gospel he preaches and actually work to advance the gospel. The Philippians have suffered along with Paul and have been partners with him in the gospel through their sacrificial support of his ministry and willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ. 
There are plenty of other passages in Philippians I could have quoted to support these conclusions. So I challenge you to read the whole book of Philippians yourselves. I think you'll see that becoming servants or slaves as a follower of Jesus is a theme that runs through the entire book of Philippians, starting with the very first verse, which says, This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And ending with Paul thanking the Philippians for their sacrificial support of his gospel ministry in chapter 4. And that concludes my introduction. Now let's finally turn to our passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. If the Lord is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to you soon. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my time of need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me, so that I would not have sorrow after one sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him and that I will not be so worried about him. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. On the surface, this passage is about two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Yet it is also about Paul, and it is also about the Philippian church. There are four examples of sacrificial servanthood to look at here. Let's look at Timothy first. Paul hopes to send Timothy to Philippi because Timothy, Timothy is the only person that Paul trusts to put the needs of the Philippian church above his own. Everyone else, Paul says, care only for themselves and not what matters to Jesus Christ. They don't care about Jesus Christ, so they cannot be expected to put the welfare of the Philippian church at the forefront of their ministry. It is only those who care about Jesus Christ who will emulate his servant attitude in their service to God's people. Others may pretend, but deep down they care for only for themselves and their own personal gain. 
and will not put the interests of others ahead of their own. But Timothy is the real deal. He has proven to Paul that he is a true partner in the gospel. He doesn't serve out of ulterior motives, but out of genuine care. Paul says in verse 4, Like a son with his father, he has served me in preaching the good news. You could say Timothy is Paul's right-hand man. Paul calls Timothy a son because Timothy is like Paul. He, he, He preaches the good news, and he confirms the reality and power of the gospel that he preaches through his genuine love for God's people and willingness to suffer for their sake. Timothy imitates Paul, who imitates Christ. Timothy is a suffering servant and a partner in the gospel. Epaphroditus is not Paul's right-hand man. There are no epistles written to him. He is only mentioned in the book of Philippians and then only twice. We don't know very much about him, but here's what we do know. He was sent by the Philippian church to Paul, who remember is in prison, to deliver a message and a gift to help support Paul. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18, At the moment I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. I'm guessing the plan was for Epaphroditus to stay with Paul for a while to help care for him. But either while staying with Paul or on the way to see Paul, he became ill. And while he was with Paul, he almost died from his illness. However, God, in his mercy, healed Epaphroditus. We also know a little bit about Epaphroditus' character. Paul says in verse 25, He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. We learn in verse 29 that he was willing to risk his life for the sake of Christ. And he had great love for the Philippian church. We know he was longing to see them because he was distressed that they might be worried about him. Epaphroditus was a true partner in the gospel who imitated Christ's servanthood and love in his service to Paul and the Philippian church. And then there's Paul, who was stuck in prison, yet willing to send Timothy, the gospel son whom he loved, to the Philippians. Not only this, Paul is about to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, despite Paul's obvious love for him, because Paul is worried about the heartache and anxiety of both Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. He says in verse 28, So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. I think there's a good chance that Paul sent Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with the special task of delivering the letter we are now studying. What is so interesting about Paul's epistle to the Philippians is that Paul uses the Philippians themselves 
as an example of the sacrificial servanthood he is calling them to. He reminds them of their gifts to him and of their willingness to send one of their sons to him, a son that they loved. We know they loved Epaphroditus because of the worry it caused them when they heard he was ill. Travel in the first century was not like it is today. It was risky business, and Philippi was between 1,100 and 1,900 kilometers from Rome, depending on the route you took. In the first century, traveling wasn't just a matter of booking your flight and getting to the airport on time. The Philippians knew that Epaphroditus might never return to them, a situation that very nearly happened. In chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, Paul says this, As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial need when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. Paul is commending the Philippians because he wants them to continue doing what they are already doing. And just in case you thought that maybe Paul is just trying to get more gifts from them, he continues in verse 17 of chapter 4, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. Paul doesn't care so much about the gifts themselves but he rejoices that the Philippians will be rewarded by God for their kindness to him. The Philippians, like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, imitate Christ's servanthood and are true partners in the gospel. I admit that I have read this passage many times without realizing how jam-packed it is with sacrificial love. Philippians 2 is like an all-star team of servants with Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the Philippian church all glorifying the suffering servant Jesus Christ our Lord through their sacrificial service to Christ and to one another. And do you see how both Paul and the Philippians were willing to send their beloved sons for the sake of the gospel? Do you see how they reflect the father who is willing to send his only son to redeem them? I want to let you in on a little secret. Sometimes when preachers get up to preach, we have certain people or groups in mind that we want to get through to. Or maybe there are certain behaviors or ideas in the church that we want to correct. Or maybe it's something that the whole church struggles with that we want to address. Perhaps even more often, we are preaching to ourselves as we are convicted of our own sins. And I confess that I haven't always put the interests of others above my own. And if you are like me and need to repent of your self-centeredness, then I encourage you to do so. Correction is an important part of preaching. But so is encouragement. And as I wrote this sermon, it wasn't our sin that I had in mind. 
It was our generosity. I know that talking about money in church is taboo. But I just want to say that it has been a joy to be the treasurer of the Northern Collective Church. Not because I like the work or because I'm particularly suited to it. It has been a joy because I have witnessed your generosity. Your sacrificial giving is beautiful because it reflects your Savior, Jesus Christ. And it has been a witness to me of the truth of the gospel that we preach. And of course, many of you give financially to missionaries and organizations other than our church. And many of you give your time and prayers for one another. And some of you give your baking, which I appreciate. I just want to encourage you to continue in your generosity. Because as you do, you draw attention to the God who saved you. You don't just help your brothers and sisters through your gifts. You don't just clothe them and fill their stomachs. You also testify to them and to the unbelieving world that our faith is true. And that the spirit of the suffering Savior does indeed dwell inside you. I have a dear friend who is not a Christian. While he was driving in Vancouver, a young woman accidentally drove her car into his car, causing significant damage. This young woman was understandably shaken and made a quick phone call to one of her friends. Minutes later, this young woman had eight or ten people show up to support her. My friend was astonished at how loved she was and attributed it to her being part of a Christian community since she had that little Jesus fish symbol on her car. My friend, who was not a Christian, recognized that there was something different about those Christians. Their love was obviously genuine because they dropped everything when their sister was in need. Don't think that love goes unnoticed. In a world where people don't forgive each other, where vaccinated and unvaccinated family members can't be in the same room with one another, where best friends stop talking because they vote for different people, where putting yourself at risk for someone is considered foolishness, where people on both sides of every debate respond with glee when one of their opponents experiences misfortune or even death, where parents abandon their children and use them to serve their own interests, where romance is about self-gratification and control, where the God who is love is mocked rather than worshipped. In a world like this, don't think that love goes unnoticed. The more that the world around us becomes self-interested, the more that love grows cold, the more our genuine love for each other will shine as a testimony that the gospel is true. Jesus really did take the form of a servant. He really did die on a cross. 
He really did rise from the dead. He really does reign in heaven. And his spirit really does dwell in his people. Every sacrifice, every act of genuine love and concern, every time we consider one another more important than ourselves, we testify to the truth of the gospel we believe. All to the glory of our suffering Savior. Amen.